Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Walnut Creek Church. It is good to have you all with us this morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Cole Myers. I serve as one of the pastors here at our Windsor Heights location. And we are currently studying through the book of Genesis. And so today what we're going to be doing is working our way through the majority of Genesis chapter 19. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Genesis chapter 19. We're starting right in verse 1. And while you're turning there, let's go ahead and just remember the context of the narrative that we're in. Abraham gets a visit from three men back in the day. And one of these men we presume to be the Lord himself. The other two are two angels. And so the Lord comes to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. Abraham shows them great hospitality and then they ask for his wife, Sarah. And they tell Abraham that his wife, Sarah, is going to bear Abraham a son his own son, and then they leave. And as they're leaving, Abraham walks out with them, and the Lord and his angels look out on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what they say. They say the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not... I will find out. And this moves Abraham to make an appeal to God to spare the cities from destruction if he finds just ten righteous people living there. And God promises Abraham that he would spare the entire city on account of just ten people. And so as Abraham is pleading with God, I think it's safe to say that there is one person on Abraham's mind. It's his nephew Lot. And what we're going to see in our text this morning is how God honors his word to Abraham by rescuing Lot from the destruction that is coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so with that, we'll go ahead and dive into Genesis chapter 19, and we'll be in verses 1 through 29. So here's what the text text says. It says, The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet, and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, Don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding, This one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. Then the angel said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? 
a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you, get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, Run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive? And he said to him, All right, I'll grant your request about this matter too and will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. The sun had risen over the land where Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. That's our text. Let's go ahead and spend some time praying. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we recognize that you are God. You are king of the universe. God, everything that exists has been spoken into existence by you. We are your creation. Lord, we recognize that we are not our own kings. We are not in charge of our own lives. We do not rule the world. You do. God, we recognize that your word is true and inerrant. And God, we ask for your grace this morning to recognize that as such. Pray, Lord, that your word would mold and shape our hearts this morning. We pray that through our time in your text this morning that our hearts would worship you. We'd be drawn to, to really glorify you in all things. So teach us, help us to be humble before you this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so before we dive into our text this morning, I've got a couple points of clarification that I want to make. And the first point is this. It's that our passage this morning is absolutely mammoth. It is huge. And there are countless roads that we can go down in this text. We are not going to do that. We're not even going to try. Okay, so there are going to be gaps in the text this morning as we study it. The second point of clarification I want to make is that this passage might seem fairly graphic to some of us. 
And I want to be sensitive to the fact that it might be more graphic than what makes us feel comfortable. But at the same time, I want to be faithful to teach the text as God has presented it to us. And so there's a balance that we want to strike there as we approach Genesis 19. And thirdly, this passage introduces some pretty relevant topics. You know, most Sundays what we want to do is we just want to be strongly anchored in the text rather than use the text as a springboard into other topics that we want to talk about. We want to spend time really digesting the Word of God as it is. But there are times where the text that we're studying, it places us on the front porch of another issue or topic that because of the present moment in our culture or in our church, it's probably helpful to address. And that is what we find in Genesis 19. That's where we are this morning. Okay? So for the most of, most of our time this morning, we're going to be working through this narrative, but there's going to be a couple times where we, we pivot just a little bit to address some topics that it presents. And so if you are taking notes and you want an outline for this morning, it's going to follow Genesis 19. What happens here? We're going to see Lot's status, Sodom's sin, and God's sentence. This is going to form our outline for us. Lot's status, Sodom's sin, and God's sentence. And so we'll begin by looking at Lot's status. This character Lot, who is he? What is his status in Sodom? But also what is his status before the Lord? So we're introduced to Lot all the way back in Genesis 12 when Lot calls Abram to leave his land and his relatives. His nephew Lot decides he'll tag along. And over the years, both Abram and Lot's possessions grow tremendously. And soon their herdsmen are arguing with one another because there's not enough space for everyone to exist at the same time. And so Abram suggests that Lot and, and him separate. And he offers, in his generosity, he offers Lot the first pick of the land. And so from where Lot is, he looks out and he sees this green, luscious, fruitful valley and says, I want to live there. And so he moves all of his things to this valley, and where that places him is right near the city of Sodom. And we jump ahead a couple chapters to Genesis 14. We're reading of how the king of Shinar goes to war with four other kings, including the king of Sodom. And in that chapter, what we learn is that Lot is no longer just living near Sodom. He's actually living in the city of Sodom. And what Genesis 13 told us is that the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. And I find this interesting because it seems to insinuate that Lot was not driven further away from Sodom because of their sin, but maybe was rather drawn into Sodom. Because our text this morning, it begins with this sentence. It says, The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. Now at this time, the gate of the city, it would have been the center of political and cultural conversation. And to be a part of this conversation would demonstrate that you were not simply a resident of the city, but you were well known, you were respected. And so if you were at the city gate during this time, you would have had attained a certain social status among your community. And so here's Lot, seemingly well respected in the city of Sodom, among a people whose sin had become so repulsive to God that he was ready to demolish the whole city. So this, I think, would cause us to question Lot's character. We read the chapter of Genesis 19. There's nothing in this chapter that makes me think, oh man, Lot, what a great guy. You do amazing things, Lot. We should call you righteous. 
But interestingly, that's exactly how Lot is referred to before the Lord. In 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter, all the way towards the end of the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, it says this, If you reduce the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemn them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if you rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So how is Lot described here in Second Peter? Even though he's living in Sodom by choice, we are told that what he witnessed there, it distressed him and it tormented him. He's described as righteous Lot the righteous man, the righteous soul. And I think the author of Genesis helps us to see this by providing a fairly stark contrast between what Lot does when he sees the angels and then what the rest of the men of Sodom do when they see the angels. So it continues in verse 1. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they, and they ate. So we see a pretty similar, though far less extravagant, display of hospitality that we saw when the Lord visited Abraham. And it's this display of hospitality that helps us to see that despite Lot's failures, and there are many, despite his failures, Lot is indeed different than the rest of the men of Sodom. And the next several verses, they get us into why. This next point on our outline, which is Sodom's sin. And as we work through this, I think what we're going to see are three elements of Sodom's sin from the passage. And the first element that we see could be described as perversion. It's perversion. And here's what I mean. So the author of Genesis arrived or he informed us all the way back in chapter 13 that the men of Sodom were evil. They were sinning immensely against the Lord. And in Genesis 18, verse 20, it says, the Lord says the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. So isn't every sin extremely serious? Like, is every sin a really big deal? Yes, it is. I mean, it was just one little act of rebellion in the garden, one little bite of juicy fruit that condemned the whole world to eternal death, separation from God forever. And James tells us that if we fail to uphold the law in just one area, that we are guilty of breaking all of it, the wages of sin, regardless of the nature of sin itself, is death. There's no such thing as a non-serious sin. But at the same time, God seems to be placing a particular emphasis on the wickedness and the depravity of the men of Sodom. He seems to be saying, you know, there are degrees of severity when it comes to sin. And the sin that's occurring in Sodom and Gomorrah is one of a high degree. And so the next question that we need to answer then is, what is their sin? What is the sin 
of the men of Sodom? In what ways are they sinning against the Lord? I think Genesis 19, starting in verse 4, it answers this for us. It says, Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. So pay attention to what's happening here. I mean, the text is very clear. Every single man, both young and old, the whole population is surrounding the house. And the reason they are surrounding the house is so that they can each take their turn having sex with the angels who they think are just other men. So there is no question that what is happening here is a pursuit of homosexual behavior. And in the next two verses, it becomes fairly clear that it's not just the intent to rape, although that is wicked and evil. It's not just the desire to give into lust in general, although that is wicked and evil. That's being deemed wicked and evil here. It's something different. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. This is obviously one of the greatest parenting fails in the history of history. I mean, I think, Lot, you are a scumball. Like, how in the world can you do this? How dare you do this to your daughters? And so, of course, it was not right for Lot to offer his virgin daughters to these barbaric men. I am in no way suggesting that that's exactly what should have happened. What I want to point out, though, is that as he does that, what he's highlighting is that the specific evil being pursued in this particular instance was homosexuality. And so this is where we need to stop. This is where we need to recognize that calling homosexuality a sin in today's culture can cause a wild uproar. And there are a number of reasons for that. I think it would be unhelpful to not pause and have a moment where we can talk through the topic of homosexuality. Do you know why it causes a wild uproar? I think there's a number of reasons. But one reason, one reason, is because for many people, whether they identify as LGBTQ or not, their identity and their sexuality, they become one and the same. And so to speak against homosexuality or transgenderism or any other sexual sin, regardless of what it is, it can feel like a personal attack on identity. But what we have to understand is our identity is not rooted in our sexuality. That is not where our identity comes from. Our identity is rooted in the fact that we have been created by God as his image bearers. That is what we are. That is who we are. And so what I want to do is take a few minutes to unpack this for us, okay? The Bible is very clear that homosexuality and homosexual behavior is sinful. 
I'm not going to take time to prove that to you. Besides this passage, you can look at Romans 1. You can look at 1 Corinthians 6. You can look at 1 Timothy 1. It is not something approved by God. And there are countless voices in our culture that will tell you otherwise. And I think the amount of gymnastics that we have to do, if we take God's word at face value, the amount of gymnastics that we have to do to say it's something that God would approve of is virtually impossible. And so this morning, our question is not, is homosexuality really a sin? The question is, why? Why do we call it a sin? Why does God's word say homosexuality is a sin? And here's the answer. Homosexuality is a corruption of God's good design for sex. That's what it is. And it's a big deal. It is a big deal. And so to explain why, let me just try to illustrate this for you. I've lived in a couple different houses, and in every house that I've lived in, I've painted virtually every surface of the house. I've gone through a lot of paint cans. I've opened a lot of paint cans in my life. And sometimes what I can do is I can find the tool I'm supposed to use to open the paint can. And sometimes I can't. And when I can't find the tool I'm supposed to use, what do I use? Screwdriver, right? Flathead screwdriver. It works the same. You can do it. It's fine. Is that what the screwdriver was designed for? No. But just because it's not designed for that purpose doesn't mean I can't use it to open a paint can. My parents, they have a very special set of real silverware that used to belong to my grandparents. And we only use this silverware on... Christmas and Thanksgiving. That's it. Otherwise, it's stored away. So let's say I can't find my paint can opener. And I open the set of silver and I get out a butter knife. And I use the real silver butter knife to open the paint can. Would it work? Probably. Maybe not for me. I I struggle sometimes. But it would probably work. But it would be inappropriate. Because it's not just not designed for that purpose, it's that it's far too valuable to be used in a manner that it was not designed for. And so here's what we need to understand. The more value something has, the more critical it is that we use it according to its design. And sex has infinite value. Sex is a wonderful gift from God that is intended to be a means of bearing his image. See, at creation, God made male and female in his image with very clear biological and complementary differences. And it was for the purpose of bearing his image. Human beings together as male and female uniquely display the glory of God to one another and to the rest of creation. And one way they are able to do this, it is through physical sexual intercourse in the context of a lifelong covenant relationship that we call marriage. This is one incredible purpose for sex and it is valuable beyond belief. I imagine some of you probably grew up being told that sex in any form or fashion is dirty and wrong, or at the very least it is awkward and there's no way we should talk about it in church. That's not true. Others of you have probably grown up 
being told that sex in any form or fashion is good and normal. And as long as there is consent, whoever it is and whatever you are doing can be fun and healthy and right. And this is also not true. But seeing the lies on either end of the spectrum can be very difficult if we do not clearly see the truth about sex that the Bible presents. That it is good, that it is right, that it is worthy of celebration because it is the means through which a husband and a wife can bear the image of God. Can there be a more grand purpose for anything than that? I mean, this is what you and I were made for. We were created to bear the image of God. And this includes in everything from our work to our relationships, to our attitudes, and yes, to our sexuality. So does this mean, listen to this, does this mean that someone who is attracted to the same sex can't bear the image of God? Or that someone who is attracted to the same sex can't be a Christian? No. That's not what this means. Why? Because your identity and your sexuality, they are not the same thing. And if we were to make that assertion, then we would have to say that anyone who struggles with any sexual sin or any sin at all for that matter can't be saved. That's a rejection of the gospel. See, we are not right with God because of our sexuality. We're not right with God because we, we classify ourselves as heterosexual. That's not what makes us right with God. What makes us right with God is what Jesus has done for us on the cross and nothing else. But seeing the intended purpose of sex, it helps us to understand then why sexual sin, including homosexuality, goes against God's design and is therefore sin. And so is this it? Like, is this why God rained down burning sulfur on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Was it because they were just corrupting God's design for sex? Partially. But there's far more. So keep reading. Verse 9 of our passage, we see the second element of Sodom's sin, and it is persistence. They persisted in the evil they were doing even after Lot warned them not to. Verse 9, they said, get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. And they put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. But the angels reached out. They brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness so that they were unable to find the entrance. Listen to how the ESV translates verse 11. This is what it says. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. What depravity. I mean, every man in the city has surrounded this house for the purpose of gratifying their homosexual lust. 
And when Lot warns them not to do this and offers them his daughters, they tell him to get out of the way. They accuse him of being judgmental. They threaten to harm him. And then when every single man there is struck with blindness, not one of them stops and thinks to themselves, huh, what just happened? Maybe I should go get this checked out. They continue wearing themselves out, groping for the door, trying to gratify their lust. There's persistence in evil. And then we get to the next few verses and we get a, another glimpse of the third element of Sodom's sin. And I would say this element is the root. It is the root of where this perversion and this persistence come from. And it is their pride. Their pride. Verse 12, then the angel said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? A son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of the out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. You know, I find it's interesting. Lot's sons-in-law, I think, were very clearly part of the mob surrounding the door that had been struck with blindness. They were blind too. Uh, the text, it says that every single man in the town was there. And then in verse 14, it says, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law. They were not in the house. He says, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. You know, there's another place in scripture we, we read about God wanting to destroy a whole city because of sin. God sends the prophet Jonah to the city of Nineveh. And, you know, Jonah, he gets swallowed by a fish and then spit out back on the ground. And then he goes to Nineveh and he says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That's his warning. And the Ninevites respond in faith and repentance, believing the words of the prophet and humbling themselves before God. And God relented of the disaster that he was planning. This was not the response from the men of Sodom. See, when Lot's sons-in-law are told of the coming judgment of God, what do they do? They laugh. They think it's a joke. Why would they think this is a joke? What would compel them to think Lot would be joking about something like God's judgment coming on their sin? It's because in their pride... They did not see their sin. In their pride, they didn't believe that their sin was deserving of judgment. Because if they had, then Lot's warning would have made sense to them and they would have gotten out of town. So it's not just sexual perversion in Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's their pride and their persistence in evil that moves God to pour out judgment on them. And that's what we read about in the rest of our passage this morning. The angels, they tell Lot and his wife to run for the mountains. Weirdly, Lot thinks, no, that's going to kill me. I'll go to this city instead. We don't have time to get into that element this morning, as odd as it is in my mind. But we get to verses 24 and 25, the final point on our outline. It's God's sentence. And here's what it says. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the city, and whatever grew on the ground. 
We could keep going. We could dive into the significance of Lot's wife looking back, right? Jesus tells us to remember Lot's wife. That's important. We could keep going and dive into the significance of God remembering Abraham as his motive for rescuing Lot. That's very interesting. There's a number of roads we could go down with that. But where I want us to camp is right here. It is that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. When we consider what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah thousands of years ago and compare it to our culture today, it's not very difficult at all to draw some pretty significant parallels. Today, sexual perversion and deviance, it is not just prevalent. It's celebrated. It's exalted. Many who attempt to speak against sexual perversion, including homosexuality, they're quickly silenced and they're threatened by those who want to continue living in sin. There's some people in some places that refuse to stop gratifying their lust regardless of whatever temporary consequences or ailments they might be experienced from engaging in it. There's a parallel to what's happening in Sodom. And then again, when warnings of God's judgment on son are given, just like with Lot, it's met with laughter or ridicule or mockery. Christians who hold true to God's design for sex and sexuality can often be written off as hateful and closed-minded and out of touch with reality. And this is not true in every situation by any means. I am not saying that every single non-Christian out there who has a different understanding of sexuality treats believers that way. That is not what I'm saying, but it is out there. And it does happen. And in the book of Jude, we're told that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And it is true. See, what we need to understand is those who continue to rebel against God, who do not surrender their lives to him, who laugh at the judgment to come, and who persist in their pride and perversion will undergo the same punishment of eternal fire. That is sobering. But there is another equally sobering truth that we need to camp out on today. See, God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah stems mainly from their pride and depravity that's displayed through perverting God's design through rampant homosexual behavior. That's what's going on. But do you know what else is a perversion of God's design for sex that also comes from pride and depravity that is also deserving of God's judgment? Adultery. Marital unfaithfulness. Pornography. Sexual fantasies. Lustful thoughts and daydreams. It's all a perversion of God's design for sex. And it's all deserving of God's judgment. And I think it's safe to assume that more than a few of us in this room this morning either struggle with or have struggled with in the past, in one degree or another, a form of sexual sin. Whether that same-sex attraction or pornography or just simply lusting after another person who is not your spouse... And the reasons for this, they're unlimited. They really are. We live in a different day and age today. 
I recognize that some of you may be victims of sexual abuse or trauma. And that has drastically shaped the way that you think about sex. Some of you have years of addiction to pornography that you're navigating, possibly from a very young age, and it's possible it still impacts you today. For some of you, sexual sin, it just seems harder to fight than most other types of sin. You can get discouraged and you can stop fighting. There are reasons why this is a hard thing to deal with. There are not excuses. But I do want to acknowledge that it's, it's just not fair for me or for anyone else for that matter to jump to conclusions about why someone might have a particular struggle with sexual sin. If you are struggling or you have struggled or you know someone who struggles, understand that there is freedom found in Christ. One first practical step you could take if you, are, if you have not been able to just articulate your struggle to someone, find someone you trust. Talk to them about it. Another possible step for you, we do have a set free ministry that we offer as a church that starts up, it's a 12-week 12 12 series that starts in the fall and again in the spring. And I would invite you, if this is something that you're interested in, you can go to our website, you can learn more about this ministry, or you talk to one of the pastors. We'd be happy to connect you into that ministry if, that, if you think that would be helpful for you. Understand, we want to help in this. But why are we going here? See, what is the point of Genesis 19? Is it simply ammunition for those who don't struggle with sexual sin to use against those who do? Is that what this is? Does God intend... For Christians today to use Genesis 19 as a means of casting judgment on those who have a sexual attraction towards the opposite sex? Turn with me to Matthew 11, please. We'll find our answer there. Matthew 11, starting in verse 16. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. Jump down to verse 20. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So this is what Jesus is saying here. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Consider what Jesus is saying here. He is proclaiming judgment on cities that did not respond in faith to the works of Christ. He says that if these same works that were done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented of their sin. They would have fallen on their face and humbled themselves before God. They would have recognized their wickedness and pleaded with God for his mercy. They would not have laughed at the judgment to come. 
Why? Why is this Jesus' proclamation to Capernaum? It's because Capernaum was comatose. They were witnessing Jesus do miracles right in front of them. And they had no response whatsoever. You know what kids do when they hear music? They dance. I bring my two-year-old into Home Depot, and as soon as she hears the music on the loudspeaker, she wiggles with all she's got. You can't turn it off. It's what they do. And if I turned the music on and she stood there motionless, I would know that there was something wrong. See, there was something wrong with the people of Capernaum. They heard Jesus explicitly teach about the kingdom of God. They witnessed him heal countless people. He raised a girl back to life, yet they were unmoved. And they continued living as though Jesus was nothing and had done nothing. So let me ask you a question. Have you been moved by Jesus? Or are you comatose? And here's why I ask. Jesus says it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for a city of people who have been unmoved by the works of Christ. Do you know what this means? It means that those sitting here today Those of us who are here today, we cannot point to Sodom and Gomorrah exclusively as an example of what's going to happen to those who engage in homosexual behavior or any sexual sin for that matter. That's not what Genesis 19 is getting at. It's a picture of what will happen to those who are not moved by faith. They're not moved to repentance at the proclamation of Christ. So I'll ask it again. Does the gospel move you? Have you been moved by the gospel of Christ? If you've been coming to church here for a while, even for a short time, I trust that you have heard the gospel. We cannot hear it enough. This is the gospel. This is the gospel message right here. It's that God created you in his image to know him and to enjoy him and to walk with him for all of eternity in wholeness and perfection and unhindered joy. That's what you've been created for. But because of the fall, we can't. And on our own, we are broken and we are sinful. We're unclean, we are unrighteous, and we are completely unfit for the kingdom of God. Our relationship with God is severed and we deserve nothing but judgment and wrath because of our sin, whether that's impure sexual desires or lying. We deserve God's judgment. And if we see clearly, if we can see this clearly, Then we can see that Genesis 19, it's not asking us to point the finger out there and proclaim judgment. It's asking us to point the finger within and to examine our own hearts. And if we were to do that with the utmost humility, being completely honest with ourselves, do you know what we would find apart from Christ? We would find the same lostness, the same desires to gratify the flesh, the same pride, the same persistence toward evil that we see in Sodom. It might not manifest itself outwardly in the same way, but the root of it would be the same. Which means we all stand condemned before a holy God. 
but God, for his glory and in his love, sent Christ. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He was the image of the invisible God, the exact expression of God's nature. No fault could be found in Jesus. And yet it was Jesus that was betrayed and arrested. It was Jesus that was beaten and mocked and nailed to a cross, bearing the punishment for our sin. And when he hung there, the wrath of God that you and I deserve was poured out on him. In John 3.16, it says, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, it says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know why? It's because you are condemned already in your sin. Jesus came to save you from that condemnation. So do you struggle with sexual sin? Jesus did not come to condemn you. He came to save you. Do you struggle with pride or bitterness or jealousy or anger or hate or lying or greed or apathy or doubt? Jesus doesn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. You are condemned already. Jesus came to save you and we are saved by grace through faith. God requires absolutely nothing of us except that through faith we receive the gift of righteousness that leads to eternal life purchased for us by his son. This is the gospel. And it is beautiful on so many levels. Because Jesus didn't just come to save you. He came to change you. And when I say that, I don't mean he just wants you to be a better person, help you do better things. He does, but he wants to operate at a level far deeper than that. He wants to change our hearts. He wants to change our desires and to mold even our deepest longing to be for him. Are you moved by the gospel? I think this is what Genesis 19 is asking us to do. To be moved by the gospel of Christ. And this brings us to our application this morning. Be moved by the gospel. Let the gospel be more than just the thing you learn in church. Allow the gospel to be what shapes you and what molds you and changes you and helps you and comforts you and challenges you and corrects you. See, you you were dead. But now in Christ, you have been made alive. Be moved by the gospel. It's the gospel that is the reason we spend time partaking in the Lord's Supper together each Sunday. It's an opportunity for us to allow the gospel to move us. Because Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. By placing our faith and trust in him, we can escape the judgment that God has promised is coming on the unrighteous. Salvation is ours because of Christ. And the bread, it represents the body of Christ that was broken for you on the cross. The cup represents the blood of Christ that was spilled for you. And this meal, it's intended to engage our senses with the reality of Jesus' death on the cross. It is intended to move us to humble ourselves and worship our Savior. If you're not yet a believer in Christ,